0: Well, hello, podcast listeners. I am in the middle of a transition. I'm moving to a new part of the United States. I'm gonna share more of that journey with you over the next several weeks. And so today I wanted to reshare an episode from back in September on the importance of emotional capitalism. So I hope you enjoy, and I'm looking forward to bringing new content to you very soon. I have a quote that hangs above my wall, so it's it's just over my computer, so I'm looking at it most of the day. Here's what it says. It says, you have a powerful voice that the world is waiting to hear. Your voice will help heal the world. Now, here's the story behind that quote. It was actually given to me by somebody, but here's the deal. I don't know who that person was. <laughs> so let, let me explain that. So I'm part of a learning community called Mind Valley and Mind Valley hosts these, hosts this event every year called AFEST. And I was able to go to AFEST this past May. And for the end of the three day event, there's about 300 people there and we all gathered in this, in the conference room, giant conference room giant banquet room, I guess I should say. And they divided the room in half. And half of us were humans. And the other half were angels. And so for those of us that were humans, we were supposed to put our hands down by our side and close our eyes, kind of bow our head a little bit. And the angels would walk around the room and whisper things in our ears that they thought we needed to hear. Basically, they were supposed to rely on their intuition to say, what does this person need to hear? And my angel, whoever that angel was, whispered that quote in my ear. You have a powerful voice that the world is waiting to hear. Your voice will help heal the world. You should know that going into that exercise, I was pretty skeptical. I'm like, "Eh, there's no way that I'm going to hear something I need to hear from someone who doesn't even know me. And yet that quote that they gave me, it really rocked me down to my core. It was important enough that you know, months later, it's still sitting on the wall above my computer. It was important enough that it's something I look at most days before I sit down to write, before I sit down to do the podcast, before I sit down to coach people. And that's an example of what I call emotional capitalism. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So let me tell you the story of how I came up with that term, emotional capitalism. If you're listeners to this podcast, or frankly, even if you just sort of know me a little bit from the from the social world, you know that I'm a person in long-term recovery. It's a really important part of my story. But when I entered into that process, when I came into the process of trying to find recovery, in my case, from from alcohol. I had some deep and abiding negative beliefs about myself. I had a difficult time conjuring up love and belief in myself. And so as a result, I was like many people with substance abuse disorders. I was trying to figure out how to find the love, how to find the belief in myself, or at least how to shut down my brain. So I didn't have to think that thought anymore. And what happened was when I came into the rooms of recovery, I found a group of people who said, yeah, we like, we know what you're going through, man. Like we get it. This is exactly the process we went through and we didn't love ourselves. We didn't believe in ourselves either at the beginning of this process. So here's, here's the deal. They didn't say it exactly this way, but, but this is essentially what, how it worked out. They said, here's the deal. Let us invest love and belief in you until you can create that for yourself. And they did. And I came, th- I'm coming through that process. No one in recovery has ever recovered, but I'm coming through that process where now, several years later, I'm finding the ability to love myself. I'm finding the ability to believe in myself. And now I have the capacity to give that back to others. And this is what I call emotional capitalism. And it's, it's important to realize that this is not just a, a frou-frou story of my recovery. This is what the psychologist, Anthony Bondero would call social persuasion. Social persuasion, the, the belief in a group that something is possible for, for us, something is possible to change in my life because a group believes in it. It's, it's this idea of social persuasion. And I think this the, the concept of social persuasion and this concept of emotional capitalism is really important for us at this particular time. People who follow me and people who know what I talk about sometimes feel, feel like I overemphasize the role of social factors in the personal growth discussion. But as I look out, as I learn from my own experience, as I look at what's happening in the literature and in the research, as I look at what's happening in the world, I don't think it's actually possible to, to overemphasize the role of social factors because here's what we know. What we know is that every year we spend more and more money on what's called self-help. So this is books, this is videos, courses. Every year as a global culture, we spend more and more on self-help, self-improvement, personal growth. And I think there's an important difference between, by the way, between self-help and personal growth. I've talked about that in other episodes. But every year we spend more and more money trying to improve ourselves And yet every year, as a culture, we're more depressed. The fastest growing rates of death, at least in the United States, are what we call deaths of despair. These are deaths from suicide, drug overdose, and alcoholic liver disease. And so we have put a lot of time, money, and effort into the idea of self-help, and we are not helping ourselves. I really think we need to disrupt the human operating system i think we need to disrupt the culture i need to think we need to disrupt the way we think about growth and this is where this idea of emotional capitalism comes comes in for me so we all know what venture capitalism is and that's the term typically when we when we have a modifying word alongside the word capitalism it's often venture capital and we all know what that is so we know the great stories of the people who invested in the face Facebook or Uber. And these are, a venture capitalist is somebody who invests capital. And we'll talk about what capital is more in just a minute, but they invest capital in usually a person, sometimes a group, but that person, usually it's a person with an idea about how to bring something to the world that they believe the world needs. And the reason for the investment From the perspective of the venture capitalists is they believe they're going to invest in this and then that is going to really, that's going to help grow this idea into a company. The company is going to grow in value and then we'll eventually go have a public, initial public offering, sell its stock, or it will be sold to another company. And that original venture capitalist will then achieve some time, some multiple of their money back. 10x, you know, 20x in the really big investments, the Facebooks and the Ubers and so on. Maybe it's 100x. It's, it's a large number. But what if we thought about our emotional investment in the lives of those around us and, and in the world the same way we think about venture capitalism? What if we thought about investing love and belief in others? so that we could grow that in each of those individuals who then would give it to others. Because when we think about it that way, we can't even imagine what, what the return on that would be. So when I think about the people who invested love and belief in me, they're responsible for the reason why I'm sitting in front of a microphone talking to you today. They're the reason, they're the ones responsible and they play a role. They, they, some of the investment, some of the return on investment is in the courses and the speeches and the coaching that I do. And I think it's really time for us to think disruptively about personal growth. Somebody who was really important to me in terms of someone I read is Clayton Christensen, who was the Harvard professor who talked about disruptive innovation. And I, I really believe one of the most disruptive things we need to innovate today is the self-help industry and how we approach personal growth. You know, culture tends to form around the ideas that we think are important. And so we tend to create ideas, concepts, artifacts, whatever that is, to support what we think is important. And I love Simon Sinek. He says, there's an entire section in the bookstore called self-help there's not a single section called help others. And I think right now we're in a time where if we can't figure out how to begin to help others, then it will become personally individually threatening to us. It's going to create like not, not being able to figure out how to help others is going to start to be an existential threat to us individually. So how do we create this kind of disruption? Well, I think, we really address the fact that we have a failure of the imagination. We have a failure of metaphor. This is this is really what I continue to be struck by. And one of the most dominant metaphors you're gonna hear in the personal growth world is this. We, we hear, I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting in an audience or listening to a YouTube video or a, you know, a course video, and someone will say, you need to secure your own air mask before you secure the mask of the person next to you. Now, let me say that there is definitely some truth contained in that metaphor. What I have learned in my own personal journey is that as I grew, as I came to believe in myself, love myself, I have over time become what I call a, self, a self-author. I've begun, to, I've begun to self-author my life but I want to suggest that this air mask metaphor, frankly, as as a defining metaphor for how we live in the world, it's a pretty shitty one. (laughs) First of all, it assumes that there's this really clear line between the people who need air masks and those who don't. It assumes that I can either give help or I need help. Now, I don't know about you, but that's certainly never been true in my life. Even in the best or the worst of times. But this air mask analogy, it also uses this single completely, almost completely improbable event, this event-driven metaphor to describe how I live every day. It assumes that what might happen in the rare event of an airplane accident is how you know what? What might happen in the rare event of a plane crash? It describes how I would live in the grocery store, or, or when I'm packing school lunch for my kids. Imagine how the world would look if we all barreled through with an a my air mask first perspective. Although, frankly, you don't have to imagine. Just head over to your favorite news site. Head over, head over to you know, open up Google News or whatever you, you you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, read the headlines and open your eyes, just kind of look around you. The reality is that we live in a world dominated by the my air mask first mindset. And we've already, I've already talked a little bit, but that's just, that's just not working out for us. We have chosen this idea of, of the air mask first model as our way of thinking about and living in the world, and it is failing us. It's failing us also in part because it it tends to drive a kind of capitalism that that we live with in this world. Now capitalism is just, it's just a system, it's the system we have chosen for exchange in this world. So it might be helpful to think briefly about, you know, what is capital? We, We use the term capitalism a lot, but we don't necessarily think about what capitalism is, Capitalism is just something we can exchange for something else, right? We typically think when we think about capital, we typically think about financial capital and we know how that works. I I go into the grocery store, I put my groceries in the cart, I get up to the register, I, I scan my groceries, put them in bags. But at that point, then there's going to be a capital exchange. So now I've got, you know, I've got lettuce and a few other things in my reusable bag sitting there. And now I'm going to have to exchange capital for that food. Right. And so I, you know, swipe my debit card and a bunch of things, you know, a bunch of transactions take place that I don't fully understand, but the grocery store is satisfied. They've received my money. I'm satisfied. I've received my groceries and I walk out. Right. And that's, that's, how we typically think about capital and that's how we t- typically think about capitalism for those of us that are social scientists we sometimes also think about social capital and social capital is just all the other things that aren't money that we can exchange for for something of value education is one that we often think of as contributing to our level of social capital we know from reams of data that the higher your level of education the more likely you are to learn or to earn rather at least up to a point the zip code you're born in that's a reflection of social capital the zip code you're born in we can almost directly correlate to your health and financial wellness when you die even if that's decades later now it's not it doesn't determine it but <clears throat> social capital is just a way it's it's sort of the It's sort of the way we think about all the non-monetary items that we can exchange for something of value. Now, anthropologists would also talk about gift economies or gift cultures. Best example of this is David Shield's book, which was entitled The Gift Economy. And he said that a gift economy is just, just a system of exchange where valuables are not sold but rather they're given without an explicit agreement for immediate or future rewards. So that's the idea of a gift economy. And what would that look like? Well, actually, we've got a really great example of what gift economies look like because it happens every year. It's called Burning Man. Now, I've never been to Burning Man, but if you go to Burning Man, you'll see that they have 10 principles on there. And here's one of them. It says, Burning Man is devoted to acts of gift giving. The value of a gift is unconditional gifting does not contemplate a return or an exchange for something of equal value now we recognize that burning man is countercultural and that's true for a whole variety of reasons right it's, it's a way that most of us don't live very very small percentage of earth's population live the burning man lifestyle day in and day out but it's countercultural because in this world that is dominated by Reciprocal value exchanges. All that means is you want me to pay, you know, $299 for ground beef. Although actually that's kind of low, but you get the idea. You want me to pay so much for this, for this ground beef or for this head of lettuce, and I'm going to pay it. That's a reciprocal value exchange. You said it's worth this, I gave you that, I gave you that much, and and we exchange. And in this world that is dominated by these kinds of reciprocal value exchanges. The idea that you can't buy anything with money, what we sometimes talk about as fiat currency. It's one of the most radical concepts that we could imagine. Well, what would that look like day in and day out? Well, let me give you an example from from my own work and from my own life. And that's a experiment that I've been involved with now for 17, almost 18 years. It's called Common Change. And so there were, there were a group of us back in the early 2000s who were asking questions about our economy. We were asking questions about our system of capitalism, at least as we had inherited it. And it actually started with what was called the money drop. So in 2002, there was a group of people led by a community and an activist named Shane Claiborne who had been leading a housing revolution against the city of Philadelphia. And they received a certain amount, a certain settlement, it was $10,000 in settlement money. So they took that 10,000 and they took $10,000 out of the the stock market, and they converted it into a series of bills and coins. Everything from ones, fives, twenties, hundred dollar bills, quarters, nickels, pennies. And they walked into Wall Street at noon in the middle of a trading day, and they just dropped the money and just saw what people what people would do. And it was, it was fascinating. You can, if you look up the simple way money drop on YouTube, you can find this story. But we realized that that's while that's a fascinating thing to do, and it certainly created some social media interest even before a lot of the big social media platforms existed. Not necessarily a long-term sustainable model. And it was also true that there was a lot of us who lived in suburban areas where we didn't necessarily see a lot of people in financial need. And so we started to to ask this question, how can we take what we've been given and move that toward helping to end end economic isolation in the world? And to do that, we created this project, really just started as a project and now has become a a major project thing that we do called common change. And the way it works is we we pool resources with people we know to provide help for those we care about. And so we contribute, each of us contribute into, into a common fund. And then as a need arises, we bring that need to the group and we decide if we want to meet that need. So I'll give you a specific example. Many years ago when I was still teaching college in the college classroom, I had a student who was the first in his family he was from Appalachia he was the first in his family to go to college and he was working work he was doing a work study and he fell down and he broke his two front teeth and at that point this individual was really faced with the choice of getting his teeth fixed or continuing his education there was no way he could do both and so i learned about this this individual and i brought the need to the group we said yes that's the kind of need we really want to support we want to invest love and belief in this person. And yeah, a little bit of money as well. And so we went to the dentist. We said, how much would it cost to get this guy's teeth fixed? And we provided funding to meet that need. Now we weren't giving that money to get it back, right? We were investing love in belief in that person And that's really the heart of what I mean by emotional capitalism. Yeah, sometimes there's money involved, but I think one of our greatest needs in the world today is really this sense of love and belief, because that's what's in short supply. Yes, there is is vast inequality in terms of the distribution of financial capital, no doubt about it. But when we look out across the social landscape, when we look out across the cultural landscape, what's what's even more unequal is the distribution of love and belief. And this is where this whole analogy of the air mask put, put on your air, air mask first. This is where I think we, we need to come back to this and revisit it. Because here's what I hear from a lot of people so I, I I talk about this. The problem with this analogy a lot and the number one question I get is well isn't that going to create co-dependence? So codependence is an idea that has a lot of currency in our culture it's been talked about a lot particularly in the recovery community but it's had a lot of you know taken a lot of on a, on a lot of thought leadership in the in the general culture as well. everybody's f- we're fearful about codependence we're fearful about relying on another person. But here's what I want to suggest, that in exchange for codependence, what we've often traded and what we've often sought to have is really a false belief in our independence. What instead I believe we need to move toward is interdependence. And what is interdependence? Well, it's just a system of mutual dependence, where we rely on each other to succeed. The reality is that we live in a system of mutual dependence every day. From the time I wake up in the morning till the time I go to bed at night, and even as I sleep through the night, I am dependent on a whole variety of other people I don't know, whose names I will never know, whose faces I will never see. And yet they make I'm dependent on them because they make my life possible. And all this makes me think there's there's another quote that's really important to me. It's from Stephen Covey. So Stephen Covey wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And that's often referenced as one of the best self-help books that's out there. And that's I think that's true. As a personal growth book, it's, it's near the top of the list of books that I give to my cl- coaching clients. But we, what we often forget is that literally half of the book, half of the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is about interdependence. Stephen Covey, in many ways, wrote that book as a critique of our view of independence. Here's what he said. Here's a, sort of the money quote from <laughs> Seven Habits. He said, to try and achieve maximum effectiveness through independence is like trying to play tennis with a golf club the tool is not suited to the reality. And I think that gets to this question of why investing love and belief in others is so important. We have now for a very long time, depending on how you look at it, about 200 years, we have been diving deep into this idea of self-help. You know, Samuel Smiles published the book Self-Help in 1854. But even before that, we were beginning to Sort of propagate this idea that we each individual, individually were all we needed. And to answer the question of how that's working out, just pick up a newspaper, walk, <laughs> walk into the world. <laughs> the reality is that we are desperately in need of love and belief. And this idea of emotional capitalism is one way to get there. So I mentioned Bandura at the beginning. The other important person i think in this research is there's a researcher at cambridge named simone shaw and shaw and her colleagues they looked at they did this really interesting experiment where they had people standing at the bottom of a hill and they had them look up at the hill and they asked them how steep it was now before they asked them that though they had gotten a sense from a questionnaire of how supported these people felt in life and whether they actually felt they would have support for even getting up the hill So what's interesting is that the people who had a strong social network, the people who had an investment of love and belief in them, the people who felt that they had strong social support, they viewed that hill as less steep. So even literally something, you can't think of something more literal than actually the grade of a hill. But even in that case, the people who had love, and belief in themselves, the people who felt that they were supported in life were able to get. Were, were able to look at a challenge ahead of them, climbing the hill, and say that it was less steep because they didn't have to do it alone because they had social support. That's this idea of emotional capitalism. That's what I wanted to talk about today, and that's a wrap for for our time together today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to know more, you can always follow me on social media. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. I'm at Will Sampson Change Coach, no P. Will Sampson Change Coach. And if you want to receive my weekly insights, and that's just a short bit of wisdom that comes out once a week, you can head over to willsampson.com and sign up for the newsletter. Please, um, please hit the subscribe button below. You can be notified of the latest episodes. And thanks, everyone.